Welcome to the Family Room, sponsored by Versprite, where we offer hope, encouragement, and wisdom centered on biblical truth and Catholic teaching, because God's kingdom begins at home. Now welcome your hosts, Mari, John, and Craig, right here on AM 1160, The Quest, your Atlanta Catholic Radio. Welcome into the family room. We are so glad to have you join us again as we do each week. I am sitting here with my co-host John and Craig. Hey guys, how are you today? Doing well, doing well. Glad to be here, of course. Great. It's always good to see you both. Yes, it is. So today we have an interesting topic. We're going to be talking about a a new book that's out, and it's called Treasuring the Goods of Marriage in a Throwaway Society. And of course, then that makes us think about, huh, throwaway society. Mm. We kind of live in one these days, don't we? We do. We do. A lot of things get thrown away. I I love irony. Yeah. As a general rule. And (laughs) I find great irony in a society that is like the throwaway society, right? Well, we're very careful about, does this plastic go here to get recycled and does this go there? And we think about our garbage, to be frank, sometimes more than we think about life and marriage and things like that. Mm. So it's, I think, definitely a throwaway society and just great irony in, in how we live and we're culturally. So uh, that's that's like Debbie Downer. So I'll no, but that, that's deep. I mean, that's deep thoughts. That's something to really ponder, right? Yeah. No, it's true. Look, we live in a recyclable society. Yeah. yeah. Marriages, children are not recyclable, guys. I mean, you know, it's just a matter of uh, the truth. And I appreciate John bringing that into the conversation. Yeah, definitely. So let's bring our guest into the conversation. That would be a, a good idea. And, I, and I'd love to introduce uh, Dr. Peter Krasniewski. And uh, he, we're going to call him Dr. K for the sake of uh, uh, simplicity going forward. But, but Dr. K is a Thomistic theologian. So we're going to hear some really rock solid thinking like it'll follow. It'll make sense to you. We're, it, it's a Thomistic in, in how he's approaching things. He's a liturgical scholar, a choral composer. Um, he taught the, at the International Theological Institute in Austria before helping to establish the Wyoming Catholic College, where he was a professor of multiple subjects. He's a prolific writer and lecturer. He contributes regularly to a wide array of websites and publications. And, and we're going to talk about the book, as Mari said, Treasuring the Goods of a Marriage in a Throwaway Society. And I've got to read this next little quote. I think this captures it really well. It's from Bishop uh, Athanasius Snyder. I believe he's in Kazakhstan. And and here's what he says. In this powerful work, combining theological insight, cultural analysis, and spiritual counsel, Dr. Krasniewski unfolds the aesthetical, mystical dimensions of marriage, family, consecrated virginity, and celibate priesthood, while exposing the demonic forces of the sexual revolution that undermine these wondrous gifts of God. That is Mm. packed. We have a full hour ahead of us, and it's going to be... It's going to be really good. So welcome, Dr. Peter Krasniewski. We, we are very, very glad that you're here with us. Thank you very much for, for uh, bringing me on to your program. So, uh, Dr. K, we always start with uh, um, our show and invite our guests in. We are going to actually open with a prayer. And so, Craig, would you open us in prayer? I would love to. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Oh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we praise you, we bless you, we adore you. You are family. You are exemplary of marriage. You are exemplary of how we should love each other. And we just ask you to bless our listeners, bless them with the truth that we can better understand your plan for our lives 
in marriage, in dealing with uh, society around us, and finding the hope in uh, all that you are doing to bring back family marriages, bring back truth, bring back solidarity in God's teaching of what family really is. And we just pray all these things in Jesus' holy name with the intercession of Our Lady and St. Joseph. Amen. 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 Father, Son, Amen. Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Craig, so much. Um, so, Dr. Kwasniewski, we are so thankful for this book that you wrote. And you, as we just heard from John reading about it, there's so much packed into it. So we will get to your book in just a few minutes. But we always start by asking our listeners if they can tell us a little bit about their own faith journey. Um, I think it's helpful to hear what other people have been through and kind of where God's brought them along the path. And so would you share some parts of your faith walk that brought you to where you are today with us? Sure. Yes, I um, I grew up in a Catholic family, youngest of six children. Uh, my 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 family always went to church on Sundays, um, but I would say that by the time I got into high school, um, I was definitely struggling and confused. Um, you know, like a lot of other kids, not only at that age, but but in the time we're talking about the 1980s, mm-hmm. um, and certainly, uh, you know, everything after the 1960s has been a time when, you know, when a lot of Catholics wander away, especially young Catholics. Um, I don't think that uh, my religious education was very good. Um, so I, I think I was kind of on the way out, but I was uh, invited to a charismatic prayer group in high school. Um, I went to it kind of on a lark, um, and that, that group turned out to be uh, really important for me in, in, you know, in turning around my life, making me take my faith more seriously. I started reading scripture, started praying the rosary, um, you know, and uh, made some really good friendships there. Uh, and then I, you know, I also had a kind of intellectual conversion that took me towards, uh, eventually towards Thomas Aquinas College in California, um, which, you know, at that time in the 1990 when I started was still pretty small um, and not as well known as it is today mm-hmm. um, but I had a I had a wonderful time there in those four years really growing growing spiritually and intellectually um, you know that's when I I guess I would say I became a Thomist uh, somebody mm-hmm. who really studies takes theology and philosophy seriously at that time um, and then you know I also discovered I uh, you know, I, I went much more deeply into the liturgy then as well. I kind of discovered the treasures that the church has in her liturgical tradition, and um, you know, I began to sing in the choir and, and sing Gregorian chant, and these things, you know, had a really deep effect on me in terms of connecting me with with many centuries of faith uh, and and many of the great saints. Um, so, you know, just uh, I, I don't want to get too detailed because the story could go on for a while, but <laughs> definitely, I would say, you know, people talk about multiple conversions in life and i've i've had i've had exactly that experience you know being turned again and again towards the lord um in a deeper way as time goes on uh and and marriage you know with my wife you know that's been a big part of of this journey as well yeah so actually as you tell your story you said you can go deeper and deeper but i you painted such a beautiful picture because one of the things that always strikes me and i know listeners are probably tired of hearing it because i say it every time but how god comes so personally to each one Mm -hmm. of us right Mm -hmm. Yeah, so as you were telling your story, 
and you were talking about the intellectual part. I was like, well, we could tell by your bio that you're very intellectually minded and God captured you that way. Um, you're musically minded and he captured you through music. Um, and I do have to ask that charismatic prayer group, was it a bunch of, uh, um, was it a bunch of people your age or was it, uh, uh, old, old ladies? And I'll, I am asking that for a very specific reason, but describe that charismatic prayer group you got invited into yeah. as a teenager. It was it was connected to a parish in New Jersey where I grew up, um, and it had the priest at the parish was the chaplain of it. It was run by a couple of adults, very good people. Um, they were the first ones from from whom I really heard uh, about theology of the body and mm-hmm. NFP and you know what's wrong with contraception. And I mean they they gave a really clear pro life message. But the group was a high school group fundamentally. I mean oh. it was you know all of the kids in it were. Um, I would say basically freshmen to seniors in in high school, and occasionally some some college students who had been in the group might come back and visit. But okay, that's great. So basically, a youth group, a youth group, but it wasn't confined to that parish. It was you know it drew in people from a wider range. Yeah. You know the other thing, Mario, that with that I think is interesting because we often talk about the charismatic renewal in the church. Mm-hmm. You talk about the intellectual pursuits of the church. And how so many so many times people are very intellectual, mm-hmm. but that's all they are. Yeah. And then sometimes people are very charismatic, which means it's more emotional. It's more mm-hmm. driven by how I feel and that kind of mountaintop experience. And I think, Dr. K, you've done a, a, a nice job of, of doing what the church is asking us to do is by melding those two things together where you have intellectual pursuit of our faith. But the Holy Spirit is driving a lot of that. The Holy Spirit is enlivening that. Would you say that's kind of how the two fit together for you? Yes, I would. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, without without denigrating um, the charismatic movement and what I received from it personally, I, I think that in my own case, just speaking for myself, um, I, I see it more as like a launching pad to, to move me, you know, deeper into my faith. But I, I think that... There, there was definitely in that high school group. There was a strongly emotional character. It seemed yeah. to have, uh, you know, the music that we played and the, and the way we shared with each other. You know, was definitely more on the on the level of emotions, which I think was appropriate for, for our age and our needs. Um, but, I, you know, when I started discovering, let's say, like the Carmelites, you know, Saint Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, um, when, I, when I started discovering especially the Benedictine monastic tradition and I started visiting monasteries, then I, there was a whole new dimension that opened up that had a lot more to do with, with, with um, the Holy Eucharist, adoration, uh, silence, silent prayer, you know, Gregorian chant, these sort of things that could be described as maybe more contemplative or more meditative. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that's been, for me, that's been like the fuel for the really long you know, marathon of faith. Mm. That's a good way to put it together. Yeah, Thank and it's you. Also, yeah, it's a good reminder for all of us as well, right? I love that. So we've got these times where we have these mountaintop experiences, but then for the for the daily grind, for the for yep. the worldly place we are, we do need these times of tent contemplation, like Jesus did, right? He yep. went away by himself with the Father. That's that's really beautiful. Grounding out. Yeah. <clears throat> So let's just take a segue from grounding out to maybe some ground rules. <laughs> and and it, we're going to talk about the the way you tie several things together is pretty great. Not that you needed to hear that from me, I guess. But, <laughs> but there's I wanted to take a minute in, and I don't know if you'd call it in the Thomistic tradition, but in a tradition of like 
making sense and the logical arguments, there's some definitions, right? There's just implicit contradictions in some terminologies that we use in our throwaway society today. We hear about gay marriage. We hear about same-sex marriage. And we hear about open marriage. So there's always these definers. There's these adjectives or qualifiers for marriage that are fundamentally wrong, right? So you can't have a gay marriage. You can't have a same-sex marriage and have a marriage, right? How does that all work into the foundations of what you want to share with us today and setting the definitions and debunking some of the contradictions? Yes, yes. So you're you're pointing to an important phenomenon, which is that whoever controls language controls thought. Mm. Um, And in a certain way, whoever controls thought controls reality, not that reality is determined by our thoughts, but, but how we perceive and interact with reality is very much dependent on how we're thinking about it and whether we're thinking rightly or not. And we can, I mean, that it's the, the claim not just of the Catholic Church, but of the whole tradition of Western philosophy is that, uh, is that at least before modern times, um, that we can either apprehend reality rightly or we can be in error and we can be, we can be under illusions. Um, you know, and so uh, and actually, Joseph Pieper wrote a book called Abuse of Language, Abuse of Power. So those who abuse mm-hmm. language, whether it's government officials or, or judges or, um, you know, just forces in popular culture and the media, um, you know, they are abusing their power because, uh, you know, what, they're kind of weaving spells over people. And you can see that in the media, which is promoting these these as you said, contradictions in terms, you know, uh, gay marriage or same-sex marriage, that, that's, that's, as, that's as meaningless as saying a square circle, you know. Mm-hmm. A promiscuous um, virgin. Yeah, exactly. To, to go there, right? It's, just a, it's insane. It's just a contradiction in terms. Um, now, why is it a contradiction in terms? Well, because things have natures. I mean, that's the, that is the basic fundamental starting point. Things have natures. Man has a nature. Um, he is a rational animal. He's a social and political animal. He's a liturgical animal. Um, but he is, he is also a sexed animal, as all animals are. There are male and female uh, sexes, not genders, but sexes. Uh, and the, um, you know, and the, the way in which animal species reproduce, uh, which Aristotle says is, is their imitation of the eternity of God. You know, the individual can't live forever, and so the species lives forever by reproducing. He says that about all animals. Obviously, human beings are are on a much more elevated plane because mm-hmm. we also do live immortally forever. But just as animals, right, to reproduce our species takes a, a man and a woman. And marriage is the stable, lifelong uh, way in which children are can be properly um, begotten and born and reared and educated and enculturated and fulfilled as human beings. This is the way in which rational animals are meant to to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, conceived and born and educated. So when we don't do that, we're actually committing an injustice uh, towards the human race and towards individual human persons. I, I got to take a detour. Uh, be, but before we do that, if you're just joining us, you, you folks, you're in the family room and we're here with Dr. Krasnevsky um, and we're talking about um, his book, Treasuring the Goods of Marriage in a Throwaway Society. Um, so, so Dr. K, uh, we, I hear you just started on something that I think is really important. You said everything has, has nat- a nature. And, and we hear about natural law, and people try to make cases or, or, or rightly want to make a case uh, uh, on a foundation of natural law. 
And but it's a misunderstanding of natural law. So it's like, well, this this thing happens in nature. Therefore, it's natural. That's not what you mean by natural law and nature, is it? Yeah, no, no. So the, you know, the the nature of a thing is 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 it's is is what it is supposed to be. What it and and what it is supposed to be, what it is and what it is supposed to be, um, can indeed be seen by its characteristic behavior. So it, it is proper to lions to you know to run after antelopes and eat them. Um, you know, so that that is part part of the nature of a lion. Part of the nature of a man, as I said before, is to be rational or intellectual. That is to have in his soul the image of God. The image of God is consists in his having intellect and free will. Intellect by which we can know reality. Um, we can know things as they are and relate to them as they are in a way that animals can't do. They're only limited to their senses and to their sense appetites. Um, and also free will then to make a choice between you know, doing something virtuous or doing something vicious. Um, and, and so natural law for us is to live in accordance with reason, with right reason, and to exercise our freedom responsibly and lovingly. That's what it means to be a fulfilled human being, a perfect human being. Thank you. So in order to have natural law, you have to have a creator that created that image. Is that correct? Yes, exactly, exactly. So natural law, you know, as many people have pointed out, the very, the very expression natural law implies a lawgiver. Um, and in this case, what St. Thomas would say is God, St. Thomas actually calls God the eternal law. He is in himself, so to speak, the law of all reality, right? He is, you know, I could say where the buck stops, but he in himself um, as supremely good and wise and loving and holy and just, he is the law for all things um and for and human beings can participate in that eternal law in a special way because they're rational and so our participation in god's own law is what we call natural law that's it sounds complicated it's not it's it's it, it's not really complicated it's just that we're not used to thinking about things this way and we you know we have to slow down and and ponder that relationship between man and god well, we're not used to thinking, so let's become a <laughs> let alone so, slow down. Let's, be, let's become a secondary uh, <laughs> process. But as you described it, it was so attractive. I mean, I kind of felt my heart like leaning toward it, though. Yeah, that, if you could have seen, yeah. Mari was like really into her eyes were you know closed, and she was really listening. <laughs> yeah, but it's but it's interesting. Look, as we redefine and we change language, it eliminates God because as we try to do exactly what you're saying, you're denying the fact that there's a creator that created a natural law that we are all a part of. So yes. with that, and, and I, I'd love you to go even deeper in this, why do you think in your mind that marriage and family are really such an, under such an attack? Yeah, I think, I think it's because, um, you know, our, well, yeah, there's a, there are a lot of ways to, to, to go about answering that question. One of the most characteristic moves in modern philosophy goes back to Rene Descartes in the 16th century. Um, and he, he famously uh, argued that man is basically divided, is, is two substances. Man, well, really, man is his mind, and the mind is joined somewhat 
um, arbitrarily even with a body. And the body is a separate substance from the mind. So basically, if you want to say what a man is, he's a body and a mind, both of those things. Um, not one being, which is what, ca- what, what the Greek philosophers taught and what certainly what, um, what the Catholic Church teaches, that we are one being, body and soul, as a unity, but rather two substances. Now, what's the big deal with that? Well, if you identify yourself, who I am, I, the ego, with your mind, then what your, your body basically just becomes disposable property. It becomes your own real estate. You can do with it whatever you want. You can, you can um, sell it in prostitution. You can modify it through mutilation or you know, transgender, whatever. You can, um, you, know, you can give it to another of the same sex. I mean, what happens with the body is sort of independent of who and what you are because you're just your mind and you control this body um, as your real estate. Does that make sense? It makes that's, a lot of sense. Error. Good sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's an error that goes back many centuries. Most people, people of good common sense, would find that an absurd theory if you just explained it to them. If you said, you know, if, if you asked a person, do you really. Do you, do you sense yourself as one being? Are you, a, are you a unity, you know, body and soul together? People, I think, commonsensically would say, well, yes, I am. Uh, and, and we know that because if I strike you on the cheek, you don't say, why did you strike my cheek? You say, why did you hit me? You know, I mean, my body is me, right? Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's a part of who I am and a part of what I am. So the, the philosophical error there is not very plausible in itself, but it has percolated through, you know, over centuries, it has percolated through the intellectual world, the academic world, the universities, and it's, it has finally come out as something like transgenderism, right, which is completely premised on this idea of the self is different from the body. These are just two different things. Mm. You asked me why, you know, why is marriage and family under attack so much? Um, maybe my answer seemed a bit abstract, but what I'm trying to get at is that marriage and family, they concern man in his, in his um, bodily and spiritual unity as a man or a woman, right? That's what we are substantially through and through. We're a man or a woman. And uh, our fulfillment, as we see in the book of Genesis, we were created to be fulfilled on a natural level through marriage and family and the begetting of children. This is the whole way that God set up the human world, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, we're dealing with the most fundamental identity of, of human persons. And if, if you're in a world that's in re- rebellion against God and in rebellion against the body and in rebellion against the natural law, then marriage and the family is going to be the battlefield where that is all playing out the most intensely. Mm-hmm. That makes total makes sense. sense. Yeah, makes total sense. So, um, Dr. K, in your book, you do lay out for us when you're talking about marriages, four different types of marriages. What, what are these? Well, I, I, think, mm, I think that... Uh, what that might be referring to is just a, a, a quotation from Pope Innocent III. Um, and that's it, it, Innocent III, who lived a long time ago, he was living in the uh, 12th century. Um, he says that Scripture teaches us that there are four kinds of marriages. There's the marriage of a man and his wife, um, the marriage of Christ and the church, 
the marriage of God and the just soul, and the marriage of the word and human nature, that is the incarnation. Mm -hmm. Um, And the beautiful thing about about this is that he says all of these are analogous to each other. That is, um, God, God created man and woman. You might say it this way. This is a way that Catholics don't usually think, but it's a kind of mind-blowing thought. Why did God create man and woman and marriage? Well, one of the reasons, maybe even the fundamental reason, is that he eventually wanted to teach us about his own love. And he was trying to find the best way to teach us about his own love, which is so remote from our experience, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so he created this image of his love so that later on, for example, we see in Scripture in the Song of Songs or the book of Hosea, that God can say, I am the bridegroom of Israel, and Israel is my bride, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, that language only makes sense if first people know what a spousal relationship is and how it's supposed to be a lifelong and fruitful um, and, 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 and loving relationship, right? So God creates man and woman to reveal himself to us. Um, and of course, then the incarnation is a kind of marriage as well between God and human nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. And, you know, we try to define marriage in a lot of other ways these days, but obviously... Um Back from the 12th century, we had the great insights into this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's every time you peel the onion back or go back, um, looking at what's gone on, it, 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 and say, okay, go go as far back as you can and see is this a new concept or an old concept? It's like there's nothing new under the sun, right? The the erroneous yeah. thinking is the same as it, as it has been for thousands of years, and and what is true remains true for thousands of years. So exactly, exactly. We and and I would just mention there just to, to tie, make one connection, that, that the, the, what Innocent III is ultimately saying is if you want to understand human marriage, you need to set your sights higher. Mm. You can't just be a sociologist who does a poll or a survey asking people what they think marriage is. <laughs> no, you have to look at the divine archetype. You have to look at the, the, the archetype, the exemplar of marriage is precisely the relationship of Christ and the church. Exactly. That's what St. Paul teaches us in the letters to the Ephesians. Oh, right? Well. <laughs> if husbands want to know what it means to be a husband, look to Christ on the cross. If wives want to know what it means to be a wife, look to the relationship of the church, the bridal and, and maternal church. Right? So these are, you know, we have to define ourselves in terms of what is higher than right. ourselves, in terms of what God gives us. So that's a perfect breaking point. We're going to take a quick break. Dr. K, thanks for being with us. And that is a beautiful thing to ponder. I love how you just described that we need to set our sights higher. So listeners, as we all set our sights higher, we're going to take a break and we'll be back in just a few minutes. And if you are just tuning in, you are here in the family room where we are speaking with Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. And we're talking about his new book, Treasuring the Goods of Marriage in a Throwaway Society, published by Sophia Press. We'll be back in just a few minutes. We'll be right back inside the family room in moments. Sponsored by Versprite on the Quest. In today's world, cybersecurity is critical for your business. Award-winning Versprite provides solutions to protect your company from hackers. For protection now, see Versprite.com. That's V-E-R-Sprite.com. The Quest thanks Versprite for their support. The Quest presents Pro-Life Minutes. Did you know that if you were born after 1973, one-fourth of your generation is missing? Perhaps that's why so many people longing for their soulmates have not been able to find them. They may have been aborted. Have you wondered who will find the cure for Alzheimer's, cancer, 
or diabetes, God may have already sent someone to discover those cures, but someone's choice ended their life before it began. Society tells us that we are alive because of our mother's choice. The world says that your worth comes from your convenience to others, but the maker of this world tells us otherwise. You are created in the image and likeness of God, full of dignity, and no one can take that away from you. So be not afraid. Let's show the world that every life matters by speaking up for life at every opportunity. For more homegrown wisdom, visit thequestatlanta.com. Here at The Quest, we often hear how our programs touch hearts and change lives. Now more than ever, people need to hear the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith. As a 100% listener-supported station, The Quest relies on monthly donations to stay on the air. Please consider making a monthly donation to The Quest and help us continue to provide inspiring Catholic programming. Monthly donors are the lifeblood of the station. Visit thequestatlanta.com to donate. Thank you for your support. This is Lisa Popchek from More to Life. Catholic Radio changes lives. It's for you, with you, every single day. Whether you're rejoicing over something and you need a community to share that with, or you're struggling with something and you need a community to support you. We're here for you every day to teach you about your faith and to help you live it. This is your home, and we're always here for you. Thanks to our friends at EWTN, our programming is provided free of charge. But this station has other expenses that must be paid to keep the doors open and the lights on. Support of your local Catholic radio station helps keep shows like More to Life available in your area. No matter the amount, your gift works to make a difference for you, for others, and for the future of Catholic radio. Please prayerfully consider making a gift right now. We'll talk to you soon. To donate, log on to thequestatlanta.com. St. Joseph was a man of few words. In fact, not a single word of his was recorded in Scripture. But the Father of Jesus spoke abundantly in his silence, and he certainly gave us a lot to talk about. Want to go deeper? Listen to the St. Joseph series on your Quest app and on thequestatlanta.com. Welcome back to The Family Room with Mari, John, and Craig, sponsored by Versprite on AM 1160, The Quest. Welcome back into The Family Room. We are here with Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, and he's talking to us today about his book, Treasuring the Goods of Marriage in a Throwaway Society. Um, Really helpful to understand and Think more deeply, I think, more deeply and richly around what is marriage, how, why did God create marriage, et cetera. And we're going to dive deeper into his book. But Dr. K, one of the things we do each week here in the family room is we ask our listeners to share with us one of their favorite family room memories. And so we would love to ask you, and this can be a family room memory from your childhood growing up as the youngest of six kids, or it can be um, in your current family, where you and your wife, obviously, congratulations on your 25th wedding anniversary. Um, and it could be a, a current memory. So what's your favorite family room memory? Okay, well, <clears throat> I don't know if I can cheat here and give two brief Sure, but, go yeah. ahead, you can. Uh, but the... When, when I grew up, one thing that really meant a lot to me is, uh, you know, we had a nice family room with a fireplace in it, uh, and in the winter, you know, we would we would get that fireplace going, and then we usually, you know, set up a table in there um, and and play games. You know, we played we played card games, we played Scrabble, um, just various things that that, you know, for for me they were just it was such a great time, like a wholesome 
time to be together with people and not just sitting around watching the TV, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that, that's just the memory that comes back when I think about my childhood family room. Um, but uh, as far as my own family room goes, you know, my wife and I love to read. We love to read aloud. Um, yeah. so we, we just pick a book, pick our favorite books, um, fiction or nonfiction. And, you know, we obviously have to agree on the book. <laughs> then once, once we've agreed on the book, then we, we read it out loud. And we did that when our children were growing up. Um, you know, we did that for years and years and years and years. I mean, obviously starting with, with books that were more suitable to younger readers, um, although there are some really great classics, you know, at almost every age, especially once you get to, like, real storybooks, you know. Um, you know, and then we got to, you know, the, the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings, and, you know, we just we read a lot of stuff together, um, P.G. Woodhouse novels, and mm-hmm. just had a grand old time doing that. And as the kids got older, they started inviting their friends over sometimes. We'd read to That's a larger cool. group of people. So that's our living room has been very much a, a reading room, I would say. Very cool. That is awesome. I, one of the things I love about your the family room memories and like yours in particular is that it gives ideas for all of us. I'm sitting here thinking, huh, I might have to go home and, and ask George if we could read aloud to each other tonight. <laughs> <That'd be fun. laughs> it does definitely take practice, and, and you, know, you have to get used to it because people are not – Really, uh, not really used to sitting and, and reading aloud. Um, and the people who are listening generally need something to do with their hands, whether it's uh-huh. drawing or knitting or you know whatever it might be. It's it's hard to sit and do nothing. Okay. Um, but if you're doing something uh, while the reading is going on, that that makes it work better. Oh, perfect! Thank you for that practical piece of advice to add to that. That's great. I hope George isn't listening right now. <laughs> he's gonna be uh, he's gonna be run, I'm, I'm, he's gonna be asleep when I get out. So, George, two things: you gotta listen to me read, and you should take up knitting. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> oh, that's great. I want to see that. Some men do knit, but anyway, not very many. But <laughs> so I think, um, Doctor K, we we really want to let you run this last part of the segment as far as hitting topics. Um, we you talk about the pulsating heart of marriage, but that may or may not be a good starting point. Maybe just say, okay, I've got this audience that's that, that we've kind of primed with the good late foundation you laid in the first half. What are some key points from that? book that you'd like us to really understand yes yes well thank you for giving that me that opportunity um no one thing one thing that i really lay a lot of stress on uh in the first part of the book is marriage as a school of virtue as a school of maturation Mm -hmm. um and and the way that that at least for fallen human beings in our struggling condition right we're weak we're fallen we're sinful um we are not perfect. We're trying to be perfect, um, as our Heavenly Father is perfect, but it's a lifelong enterprise. And so what, what, what this, this school of virtue means for us practically is sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, marriage uh, is a school of sacrifice, and sacrifice is what perfects love. Love is, when love is easy, um, it's not, it, is, it doesn't cease to be love, but love is tested and proved um, in conditions of trial in conditions of temptation, when we're tired, when we're feeling selfish, um, when we're depressed, when things are not going well at work, whatever the case may be, um, you know, that's when God is pushing us to the next level of maturity and the next level of virtue. Um, we are going to fail when we, when we, you know, along the way, which is why marriage is also a school of forgiveness and mercy, and I talk about that as well. So really every, you know, you could put it this way, Every quality that is necessary for a saint 
is what marriage is designed to bring about. Mm. And it's not the only way that that can be brought about. I also talk about consecrated virginity and, and celibate priesthood in, in part two of the book, um, actually part three, pardon me, um, because I really want people to understand, and I make the argument, as the Church does, that we can understand marriage best if we put it next to a life of virginity or celibacy consecrated to the kingdom of God, and vice versa. We can, you know, we, all of these vocations have to be understood in light of each other. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, there is something very radical about marriage, something very countercultural right now in a society of selfishness and me, myself, and I. That's what I call the unholy trinity, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's very countercultural, it's very radical. You know, the, the Christians who are trying to do this are the most adventurous and the most heroic people in the world. Um, and we need to, in a sense, give ourselves a pat on the back, you know, and then get back to work, uh, you know, not, not be too proud about it. But just realize that what we are doing is, you know, is, is, is just is the school of, um, of perfection. And it's, it's hard, but it's worthwhile. It's the only thing that's worthwhile. Mm. Yeah, what I've been engaged in this conversation as much as the topic is the whole truth of logic and logical conversations, but based on truth, because a lot of what we're talking about, there's debates on both sides of this, you know, redefining what a marriage is, redefining what a man and woman is. And they think they have a logical conversation, but yet it breaks down really quickly. And Dr. K, everything you say just makes logical sense and it ties back to a lot of truth. And I think in in the book, um, and I think in society, right, the you, you you talk about how the devil kind of weaves his way in and attacks, and he does it very subtly. Meaning, you know, we've looked at how said the sexual revolution has kind of advanced, and how it treats premarital sex. I think, and I might get this wrong. I think it was Pope Paul the sixth, maybe that talked about contraception, especially artificial contraception, and then talked about how it would degrade society and talked about the effects. Everybody laughed at him, but yet pornography grew out of it. It was always there, but it, it, it amplified abortion, divorce, things like that. So in your mind, would you talk a little bit about how the devil's attack on marriage and family kind of all fall into those categories and what your thoughts are and how logically it's maybe played out in in our society today yes exactly yeah no i've got i've got a whole chapter um called the uh, the devil's war against celibacy marriage and the eucharist mm-hmm. um you know really my basic point there is that uh you know the the devil um the the devil is quintessentially selfish um he's looking out for himself, his own interest, his own glory, um, which he doesn't want. He doesn't want to receive his glory from, from um, being a servant of the living God who is glorious. I um, mean, he, he doesn't want to receive his happiness as a gift from another. He wants to, um, to be responsible, so to speak, for his own glorification. Uh, and so what, he, what he's going to do is he's going to attack any way of life that is based on unselfish love, that's based on the gift of self um, in, in humility um, and in genuine care for the good of the other, right? The devil doesn't care about the good of the other. He cares about his own good, um, and he wants to, to uh, subordinate other people to his own good, right, which is the definition of selfishness, making yourself the center of the world. Um, so mm. that kind of egoism, 
that kind of narcissism that you see, you know, most of all in Lucifer um, is unfortunately and, and tragically what you see all around us in our society. People are very much agitating constantly for what they call their rights, their right of self-determination, their right to be happy on their own terms, really to make themselves happy, which is impossible. Nobody can make himself happy. Mm-hmm. Only God can make us happy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and then, of course, with, with priesthood and with religious life, I mean, those are even more radical contradictions of what the devil, um, you know, is, is all about. Because, you know, uh, as I said before, marriage is the natural state for human beings. And so if the priest or the religious who gives up that natural state is giving up a very great good for the sake of planting his feet firmly in the kingdom of, of the world to come, the life to come, and making himself a pure instrument of God's work in the present world, right? Um, and that is, you know, that is as radically opposed to, to, to what Satan is and is about as anything that can be imagined. Mm. So think about the term, we might have talked about this before, this term, St. Joseph, terror of demons. Yeah. It, yes. it, it makes complete sense, right? Yeah. Because a, a man of that obedience, that self-sacrifice, like it's mm-hmm. it's a terror of demons. Yeah, it, it, it fits. Yes, yes. And in fact, there's a there's a spiritual writer. I can't remember who who it is, but there's a spiritual writer who says that um, that the one thing the devil cannot comprehend is humility. Mm-hmm. Um, he can't he cannot understand it. It simply doesn't make sense to him. Um, and so the more humble one is, the more protected one is from the devil, because humility is like a cloak. It's like a cloak of invisibility, you know, in the in the myths, right? You, if you had a cloak of invisibility or a ring, the ring of Gyges in Plato or the ring, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in, in the Lord of the Rings. But mm-hmm. if, you, if you had something that could make you invisible to the enemy, uh, you know, humility would be that when, when it comes to uh, our enemy. Mm. That's interesting. You know, as you're talking, what I keep thinking, I'm these guys tease me because I always say I'm very practical. What? I take <laughs> to practical things. She's but I was lying. thinking about, you know, okay, marriage is a school of virtue, right? It's it's it perfects love. It's the school of forgiveness. It's the school of mercy. It and that's so that's marriage itself. And don't we want our children to be witnesses of that kind of a school that's going on? around them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly because because human beings learn mostly by imitation. Mhm. Um and you know, it's the 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 most important learning that goes on is not the is not the learning from textbooks. Um in fact, most people don't remember what they've read in textbooks. <laughs> it's it's what they see people doing. You know, if if you even think about uh teachers that are most influential on their students, it's usually not because of the subject matter that was taught it's because of the personality and the and the example and the you know the kindness or the or the enthusiasm or some other personal quality um you know we are persons are wired so to speak to respond to virtue to to personal qualities that are virtuous that are admirable um we really do have i mean saint thomas says we have a natural instinct for virtue it seems it's often derailed and um and and sort of covered over by bad habits but it's there and one sign that it's there is that most people will no matter how vicious they are they still they still want to be told the truth by other people and when they're treated kindly they can recognize it Mm. even if they can't reciprocate very well Um, we basically know what a functional human being is supposed to look like at Mm -hmm. least in some rough way Mm -hmm. Um, and i think that we're 
we're either drawn to that or we have a conflicted feeling about it because we ourselves are conflicted, you know. Mm. Yeah. So listeners, if you are just joining us, you are here in the family room and we are talking with Dr. Peter Kwasniewski today about his book, Treasuring the Goods of Marriage in a Throwaway Society. You know, and as as you speak, it makes me want to read your book because you are so articulate and in, um, in how you describe all of this. It's, it's fascinating. And I love that idea of having kind of like this cloak of invisibility when you're humble that the devil can't comprehend it but at the same time we do know that people are you know are under attack you know the devil does attack if you are doing things that are the good of the other um but in the family room one of the reasons that we started this show is because we do believe that the kingdom of god begins in the home and that's exactly what you're saying i think right that that children are witnessing the type of um virtue and and hopefully then going out and living it in the world the way uh, God asks us to do, bring his kingdom here uh, to earth by being kind and being humble and being giving and serving each other. I think that ties back to the uh, Dr. K, you know, the whole idea of you can be very logical and get into an illogical conversation with the people around us. But to be cloaked in humility and be cloaked in kindness Mm -hmm. and speak the truth in kindness and in love um, can transform people's hearts, right? Because I think the debates we're having today are out of hurt. They're out of confusion. They're out of a brokenness that, you know, when you drill down, a lot of these people have deep-seated wounds that they can't get around. That that, that gives me the opportunity to make a really important point, which is that— you know, obviously, I wrote I wrote the book because I think that the truth the truths that God has revealed to us about all of these subjects are extremely important for us to ponder and to learn better um, because they they will form us they'll form our hearts and minds. Um, we know that the choir does need to be preached to. You know, <laughs> some people say, "Why are you preaching to the choir?" <laughs> but but it's also true that you know if 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 somebody asks the question, "Well, how do you convey?" the beauty and the truth of, of the church's teaching on marriage and family, um, how do you convey that to the secular world, to people who are so violently opposed to it, to the homosexual community or the transgender community or whatever? How do you convey that to them? And my answer is you usually can't convey it by argument directly, immediately. Mm-hmm. That is, it's a rare person who wants to sit down and have a calm conversation that is probably going to last several hours you know, about these sort of topics because, as you said, they're, that's not where they're at. They're wounded. They've mm-hmm. often been brainwashed um, by social media or by whatever it is that they've, you know, that they've allowed themselves to be consuming for years. Um, they're not really open to argument. But what, what can open somebody's heart uh, is, is the example, the example of a good, loving, reasonably happy person. I say reasonably happy because full happiness is, is for heaven. But, you know, we can be in this life reasonably happy people, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, you know, in spite of, of, of our weaknesses and, uh, and our flaws and so forth and, and those of others. And so just to, just to give an example, you know, we all know stories of maybe we've even been involved in them of, you know, women who have chosen not to get an abortion because they because they meet someone, usually a sidewalk counselor, who transmits to them a sense of love and a sense of confidence that maybe the first time this scared woman 
has ever met somebody who actually seems to believe in her and her mm-hmm. ability to carry through with the pregnancy and who is hopeful about the future and who wants to help as opposed to people around her who are angry or fearful or whatever you know the the negative emotions are that people are surrounded with in their daily life um so i mean there's just such a powerful that that example can be so powerful and then later maybe after somebody's heart has been melted a bit you know then you can start to introduce them to well here's the reason why we believe what we do and here's the teaching of the church and then that person is in a better position to start to to um, consider that and to see its truth yeah that's a great example and i've um i've seen people and we've actually had people on our show who've been um on the sidewalk and it is true you're you're right the the young women have been told that they can't um or they they won't be able to and they've been filled with fear but somebody comes to them filling them with love and with hope and encouragement and it totally shifts not only that decision but it shifts the rest of the way they see themselves and the rest of the the way they see the hope for their own future um and that's what this is right instead of a throwaway society which is what we seem to have come to we want them we want people to have this this great hope yeah what else from your book um dr k would you like our listeners to uh, hear about Sure. Well, there are a few things. Those who are familiar with my work know that I, I that I'm no stranger to controversy, and I don't <laughs> I don't I don't mind ruffling feathers. So I I talk in this book about um, the question of modesty. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a whole chapter on that, and you know it's it's not meant to be a detailed you know how to manual. I mean, there are other books that that talk about that kind of at that level of detail but what i try to do when i talk about modesty is just to just to make people aware of how important the way they speak and dress and appear how they present themselves how they appear in the eyes of others what they're saying what they're communicating about themselves by the way they act and walk and dress and talk all of those things they're all part of modesty it's not just about the hemline you know or, or the neckline or whatever um, so I, I tackle that question and I also talk in a related way about vigilance in the use of media um, you know trying to get people to think very carefully about their choices in what they watch what they watch online the movies, the videos, um, what they listen to, even the music they listen to, mm. you know, the chastity and purity are something that we have to fight for at every level and in every part of our human life. Um, it's not, you know, it's not something we need to be obsessed about, but it is something we need to be thoughtful and reflective about, you know, is, is the entertainment content I'm taking in really helping me to be a chaste and pure person? Mm-hmm. In that vein, do me a favor, too. You talk about the relationship between marriage, consecrated virginity, and the celibacy of the priesthood. Can you, I know you mentioned it, but can you kind of break those apart even more? Sure, yes. So the the way the church sees um, the priest is that the priest is in the image of Christ. He is an altar Christus, that means another Christ. Um, He acts liturgically in persona Christi. Um, on behalf of Christ in his person. Um, and who is Christ? Christ is the bridegroom, the divine bridegroom of the church. Um, Christ came to reveal man to himself, but Christ did not get married. He gave his life entirely for us, um, down to the last drop of his blood. And so the one who is going to stand in the place of Christ the bridegroom um, should himself imitate Christ radically in that total self-giving for the church. So the, the, the bride of the priest is the church, right? That's mm-hmm. basically what I'm saying, mm-hmm. um, you know, in imitation of Christ. 
Uh, and um, the celibate, the, the, or sorry, the consecrated virgin, um, you know, obviously you can have male or female religious, but generally I'm, I'm speaking here now of a consecrated virgin, a nun, a sister, a religious sister. Um, she is doing the same thing from the other point of view. That is, she is embodying the church, the, the bridal mystery of the church. Um, she's giving herself as a bride to Christ, uh, her bridegroom. And this is a traditional way of speaking. Feminism, when feminism swept through the world and through the church um, in the 60s and 70s and afterwards, uh, this way of thinking and speaking about female religious, you know, was frowned upon and, and you know, was even savagely attacked. Um, but that's absurd because, that, because that, that's undermining the bridal um, and spousal meaning of that vocation, which is at the very heart of it, right? This is what a religious sister or a nun fundamentally is. She's not fundamentally a social worker or a hospital worker or, you know, whatever, whatever other ministry she might have. Her ministry is to be like Mary of Bethany sitting at the feet of Jesus, mm. right? Um, and this is, you know, that is the heart of that vocation. So, yeah, I think, I think when you look at it that way, both the priesthood and the and virgin, virginal consecration, um, it really illuminates then that marriage between a man and a woman, although it has a natural human dimension and it's connected with bringing children into the world, um, it, it's, the deeper meaning of that is to prepare us for the eternal nuptials of the Lamb of God with his people in heaven. This is the way the book of Revelation speaks about it, right? The mm -hmm. city of God that comes down from heaven is adorned like a bride with her jewels. That's what it says at the end of the book of Revelation. So all of us in heaven are going to be caught up in this eternal marriage of Christ and the church. And that's what our earthly marriage is supposed to prepare us to do. Mm. I think that's a really beautiful way to, to start to end our time together. Um, that it, It's uh, incredible to think that we do have this hope, um, this hope of heaven, and that we do have this time on earth um, in our marriages and whatever vocations we have chosen that way. Um, like you said, some of them are going to be consecrated virginity. Some of them will be celibate priesthood, but we can start practicing for it right now. Um, Dr. K, would you bless us by praying for us and our listeners um, as we close out? I know that family prayer is important to you, and you talk about that in your book. So listeners, get his book. You can even read about that as well. But would you close us out with a prayer? Yes, certainly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, you are the model of all fatherhood. All fatherhood on earth is named after you. We beg you to bless us all with your fatherly goodness, to give us the grace to live our vocations, whatever they may be, as fully as possible with the help of your grace, and thus to bring into the world the good news of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his holy name. Amen. 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 Dr. K, we thank you so much for being with us here in the family room today. And listeners, we do ask you to go out and check out um, Dr. Kwasniewski's book, Treasuring the Goods of Marriage in a Throwaway Society. We'll also have a link to it in our show notes. And please join us again here next week in the family room where we offer hope, encouragement, truth, and wisdom for families. Thanks for hanging out with us in the family room, sponsored by Versprite. For more info, go to thequestatlanta.com.